Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 48 through 59. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59, and considering Jesus Christ the Lord. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Give attention to God's holy word. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you, have, you are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for making us your people through the Lord Jesus and for being with us this evening as you have called us together. We pray now, O Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit upon the preaching of the Word, which is your means of grace by which you feed us and strengthen us. We ask you to do all of this out of your love to your Son, the Lord Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray, amen. C.S. Lewis famously said about the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ that if you are going to assess what the Lord Jesus says about himself, you really have three options. Either the Lord Jesus is a lunatic because of the claims that he made, or he's just a liar, or he really is the Lord that he claimed to be. C.S. Lewis uh, gives us this uh, option in mere Christianity, and this is a very helpful way to look at the passage we have before us. What we're going to see in this passage, that as Christ claims the things that he claims, he is neither a lunatic nor a liar, but he is actually the Lord. He's neither a lunatic nor a liar, but he is actually the Lord. And we're going to see three sections here in this passage. Verses 48 through 51 has to do with lunacy. Verses 52 through 56 has to do with lying. And verses 57 and 59, 57 through 59, has to do with the Lord. 48 through 51, lunacy. 
52 through 56, lying. 57 through 59, the Lord. Now, I want to just give us a little bit of context to this sermon. The reason I'm framing the sermon this way is because the passage that we have before us is part of this continual debate that Christ is having with the Jews. And what's happening in each of these sections is they accuse him of being out of his right mind, and then they accuse him of lying until finally at the end he comes out and says it, I am the Lord. And so what we're going to see in this passage is not only what Christ says about himself, but what an unbelieving heart responds to Christ with. And this is really what it comes down to. An unbelieving heart either looks at Christ as a lunatic, or they look at Christ as a liar, or they acknowledge him as Lord. And as we look at this passage, I hope to bring this out for us. And so we begin with lunacy. Verse 48 comes in the context of the rest of chapter 8. And remember that the, the purpose of chapter 8, John is drawing out for us what the true seed of Abraham is like. The true seed of Abraham receives the Lord Jesus Christ, but also perseveres in the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true seed of Abraham doesn't have a temporary faith. The true seed of Abraham has an enduring faith. And Christ has, pardon me, been uh, expounding this with the Jews. And at the end of this section, he has accused the Jews of being sons of Satan. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you want to do because you don't receive my word. And now in verse 48, the Jews respond and say, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, what they're accusing Christ of being is literally out of his mind. You remember the passages that talk about demon possession throughout the Gospels. Probably the most famous one is the demoniac that Jesus goes to visit across the Sea of Galilee. This man lived in the place of the tombs. He was filled with a legion of demons, and it says he was out of his mind. He would cut himself and run around naked. That's what the Jews are accusing Christ of. Are you not a Samaritan, and do you not also have a demon? Do we not rightly say that you are out of your mind? Now, notice why they are saying this. The reason they are saying this is because as Christ is preaching the gospel to them, he is making things black and white. He's drawing the contrast between the seed of Abraham, those who are really saved, and the seed of Satan. And he's telling these Jews there is only one of two options. Either you're a child of God through the seed of Abraham, or you are a son of the devil. And the difference is whether or not you believe in me, whether or not you walk in my word, you abide in my word and do the works of your father, Abraham. Now, before we're too hard on the Jews here, we all have this tendency within us. We all have the old sinful flesh that is not comfortable with the black and white of God's requirements. God's requirements come to us and demand absolute surrender. And our flesh responds and says, well, 
It's not that serious. We don't need to be that holy. We don't need to be that obedient. We don't need to believe in Christ exclusively. There's many ways to God. There's many ways to get to heaven. There's many ways to be saved. Broadly speaking, that's how a lot in the church speak. But in our own hearts, we who have been well taught, I trust, to know that there is no other way of salvation may be tempted to think this way about God's demands. Let let me put it to you this way. When God's gospel or God's commandments come to us, His commandments come to us and demand obedience. That's the only response to God's law. That's the only response to God's gospel. Paul will say in Acts chapter 17 when he's preaching in the city of Athens, he says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. This is what's sometimes known as a qualitative difference. There is black and white, completely different qualities. There is true and false. There's obedient and disobedient. That's it. Two different qualities of response to God's word. Where we get confused, or where we confuse ourselves, is when God's black and white commandments come to us, we want to make things quantitative. God says, give me all of your heart. And we say, I'll give you 80% of my heart. God says, repent fully. And we say, I'll repent six days out of the week, but leave me one day out of the week. In other words, God's law says black and white, and we want to put it all into grayscale. This is what the Jews are doing here. Christ has said to them, if you believe in me, you're the seed of Abraham. If not, you're the seed of the devil. And they're like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, this is a little insane. Aren't you insane? Don't you have a demon? Well, Christ responds. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, Christ answers their accusation of him, and he responds, By proving, one, he's not insane, but also, two, he really is the Lord that he claimed to be. First, he proves that he's not insane. Notice what he says. I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Christ is laying out for them his motivations. He's saying simply, I only seek to honor my Father, I'm not seeking my own glory, and I've trusted in one who will judge me, and he will judge you. In other words, what Christ is saying to them is, you can believe me or not believe me. It doesn't affect how I'm going to go forward in my life. You will be judged for this, and he's supremely confident in this. You know, when Paul was standing before King Agrippa, he was preaching the gospel to Agrippa, and then Agrippa says, uh, Paul, I think much learning has driven you mad. I think much learning has driven you insane. But then Paul responds and says, No, no, O king, but I speak the words of truth and rationality. I speak the words of truth and of reason. 
Later on, Paul will tell Timothy in his second letter, Paul has not, uh, uh, God <laughs> has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Christ is tapping into the same ideas here, and fundamentally, the truth that men will be judged is the most rational thing to believe. That's what Christ tells them. There is a judgment day. Everything will be put to rights. I'm not out of my mind. But then he also goes and proves that he is the Lord. Look at what he says. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, who alone has words that are powerful enough to keep men from dying? Who has words that are powerful enough to keep men from experiencing death? Only God alone can do this. Only Jehovah Almighty can preserve his people from death. And so Christ repeats to them, if you keep my words, you will never see death. You know, this, this whole idea that there is a final judgment as the basis of our sound thinking and our sound mind, it's important to be reminded of this because, you know, what happens to people when they lose sight of this fact? Well, we live in a fallen world. And there is wickedness and evil all over the place. There is wickedness and evil in your own hearts that we have to battle daily. There's wickedness and evil in your family, extended family and immediate. There's evil and wickedness in the community around us, in the whole world around us. There is such depth of evil that people who have forgotten that all evil will be judged end up going insane. They end up killing themselves. They end up falling into a depression. They become narcissistic pleasure seekers. They end up losing their minds because the human mind was given a conscience. And our conscience recognizes righteousness and unrighteousness. And our conscience naturally seeks judgment upon the unrighteous and reward upon the righteous. This is how God has made our minds to operate. This is why thinking in these categories is the basis of having a sound mind. This is why you need to be close to the Lord Jesus. Because this kind of thinking, forgetting about judgment, starts with yourself. You see, what happens when we sin and we're convicted and we try to get away from it? Well, we start telling ourselves lies. We start trying to hide it. We start going off into deceptions, either self-deception or deceiving others, because our conscience is demanding righteous judgment upon our sins. The blood of Christ is the only thing that can cleanse your conscience and restore you to your right mind. This is what Christ did with the man who had the legion of demons, isn't it? He came to the man, cast out those demons, and it says he was back in his right mind. You know, Pontius Pilate, the one who crucified Christ, he did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the, the story goes, the church tradition is that, remember at the trial in John's gospel, he washed his hands of that man and said, I have nothing to do with this. The story goes that after Christ was crucified, his guilt was so massive, he ended up going insane and he was found in the desert washing his hands in sand, saying, I wash myself of this man. He lost his mind. He went insane because his guilt was not cleansed. So we need to have our guilt cleansed. We need to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. We also need to keep his word, just as Christ tells us here. Notice, isn't this amazing? In, in all of these debates with the Jews, Christ still leaves the door open for them to repent. They just accused him of being demon-possessed. You know, in another part of the gospel, it says that anybody who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never receive forgiveness. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when the scribes and the Pharisees said, when Jesus performed miracles... The scribes and the Pharisees says he casts out demons by the power of demons. He's able to cast out demons by the power of Satan. He was really doing it by the power of the Spirit, and Christ said that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Jews have blasphemed Christ himself, and he still leaves the door open. If you repent and keep my word, you will never see death. Brothers and sisters, there is always hope for ourselves for our loved ones, for people that we know, if there's still breath in their lungs. There's always hope for them to repent and come back to the Lord Jesus. That's why Christ always opens this door for them. Even in the midst of this, and it's going to get worse, they accused him of being insane. He answers them fully, but now they accuse him of being a liar. Look what happens. Verse 52, Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Aha! We got you. We caught you in a lie, we think. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? One of the first things to notice about their accusation of his lying one, just like in the previous section, the Jews are focused on fleshly, physical descent of Abraham. They said earlier on that we are the seed of Abraham. And Christ acknowledged that in verse 37. He says, I know that you're the seed of Abraham after the flesh. Here, likewise, they're thinking about physical death alone. They are thinking about Abraham's body being dead, the bodies of the prophets being dead and in the grave. And they're saying to Jesus, they're dead. But we know that the truth of the matter is, as Christ will say in other places, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, he says, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The conclusion is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Even though their bodies are dead, their souls are living with God forever. So at the first level, they're misunderstanding death. When Christ says they shall never see death, they shall never taste death, he's not talking about avoiding physical death. 
He's talking about avoiding eternal death, spiritual death, being separated from God forever. So the first thing is they misunderstand uh, what Christ is talking about when he says, you shall never taste death. But then he al- they also misunderstand who Jesus is. Notice the direction of their questions is, Abraham's dead, but you said nobody will die that keeps your word. Who do you think you are? It all drives to the identity of Christ. They're trying to catch him in a lie. Well, Christ answers them. He says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. One of the first things Christ answers them with is, it's not just me who is making these claims. I am not here on my own. He answers them with the doctrine of the Trinity. He's saying that it's my Father who honors me, and I seek to honor Him. There's a Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son comes from the Father and shows the Father's glory to men. Men believe in the Son and are reconciled to the Father. That's how Christ is answering them. Now, In the first section, he already answered them by saying, my word will keep you alive. I am God. Now he goes a little bit further to talk about the persons of the Trinity. This is something the Jews should have understood. This is something the Jews should have understood, that there is one God, yet there's multiple persons. In the new members class, we were talking about the incarnation. And one of the things that we pointed out about the incarnation is that the Son of God manifested himself as the Son of God in several places in the Old Testament. I'll just, we'll just turn to one that's one of my favorites and one of the clearest. Turn to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Verse 13. Joshua 5, 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, I'm not for you and I'm not for them. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. A couple of things to notice about this passage. First, this commander of the army of the Lord comes, and he's distinct from the Lord. There's the army of the Lord, and this guy is the commander of it. There's a distinction. But notice also, even though there's a distinction, this person is fully divine. Joshua falls down and worships him, and he doesn't stop him. You know, if you read the book of Revelation, John sees all kinds of angels and visions, and at at a couple points, John will fall down and start worshiping an angel, and then the angel will say, no, don't do that. I'm a servant just like you. Don't, Don't worship me. 
So when righteous angels are being worshipped, they stop it. They say, don't, no, no, you don't worship me, worship God. Joshua's not stopped. The man receives his worship, but notice also, the commander of the army of the Lord told Joshua, take your sandal off your foot, because this place is holy ground. The other place that that happens was Mount Sinai and the burning bush. When Moses was talking to the Lord through the burning bush, the Lord told him, take your sandals off your feet, this is holy ground. So there's a distinction here. There's the Lord and his army and the commander of it. And yet this commander receives worship just like the Lord. And wherever this commander shows up, it's holy ground, just like the Lord. There's one Lord, but a distinction of persons. This was here in this passage. There's other passages in the Old Testament that show this same truth. All I'm trying to point out is that when we go back to John chapter 8, the Jews should have expected this. The Jews should have understood that when the Messiah comes, he will be God incarnate. One last thing I forgot to point out about Joshua 5. You notice what the commander says to Joshua. As the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Meaning, at this time, I'm coming as the commander of the Lord's army. But there's another time that I will come again. There's another time that I will come as the seed of the woman, the seed of David, the Savior of God's people. That's what we're dealing with here. So Christ says to them, I'm not a liar. My Father honors me. I don't honor myself. You say that this God, my Father, is your God, yet you have not known him. But I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Christ goes further. He talks about the distinction between himself and the Father. But now he talks about the unity between himself and the Father. This is a unity of knowledge. Matthew will say in verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel that highlights this same principle. Matthew 11, verse 27. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, Christ says this, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. The idea here, God the Father is a divine person. He's infinite, eternal, glorious in praises. The only other person that can know the Father is the Son, who is also a divine person, infinite, eternal, glorious in praises. And what Christ is telling the Jews is that I know God because God and I are one. I know my Father. And if I were to say that I didn't know Him, if I were to say that I didn't know that I was the Son sent from the Father, I would be a liar. But I'm not because I know my Father and I keep His word. Let me maybe describe it this way. My wife and I have, have contemplated getting a dog. Some of you have dogs or have had dogs in the past. Some of you may not like dogs. Uh, we, we like the idea of having a dog. We like the idea of having a guard dog of some kind. Now, you know, when you get a guard dog, 
Rottweiler, German Shepherd, they can be a little dangerous because they're powerful animals. And so what you have to do with these dogs is you have to introduce them to the family. You have to get them uh, socialized with the people in your family. You know that I have a son, and if we were to get a dog, my son and I know each other at a different level than that dog knows us. My son and I know each other at the level of human knowledge. Now, if I were to get this dog, I could train this dog so that it would know me, and through my teaching, it would come to know who my son was, but it would only be at a dog level. Likewise, what Christ is telling us is that he and the Father know each other on a divine level. And when we come to trust in the Lord Jesus, he then shows us the Father at a level that we can understand, just like the dog in your family. Um, And so Christ is the only one that can do this. And in John chapter 8, he is telling the Jews, I know the Father, and I'm not a liar like you are, because I keep his word. But he goes even further. He goes even further and says, Abraham did actually see my death. Abraham did keep my word. Verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, this is a very curious verse in the Gospel of John. In the context, Christ is telling them, I am greater than your father Abraham. He has seen my day, and he rejoiced at my day because Abraham was one of God's people. What I think Christ is referring to here is found in Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17, God is making the covenant. He is uh, expanding the covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 17 is where God adds the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision. But it was also in Genesis 17 where God promised Abraham that they would have a son. Remember at this point, Ishmael has already been born. Abraham was afraid earlier on that Eliezer, his servant, was going to inherit his whole house. God's promise to Abraham was that it would be his offspring from his body. Well, now in John 17, the Lord says this to Abraham in verse 15. Genesis 17, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Notice how Abraham responds. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now I think the way we're supposed to understand this laughter is this is a holy and a righteous laughter. This is the kind of laughter when somebody comes and gives you a gift that is beyond your wildest dreams, and all you can do is simply laugh for joy. You're just uncontrollably overjoyed at what has just been given to you. You see a small example of this when uh, Oprah gives houses to people, right? Poor family, and they have 18,000 kids, and Oprah comes and gives them a 46-room mansion, And the people are just laughing and crying. They can't believe it. This is beyond our wildest dreams. At a much more deeper and holy level, this is what Abraham is doing here. He fell on his face and laughed, 
and said in his heart, carefully pay attention, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, for those who were here when we were on this part of Genesis, for those who weren't here when we talked about this, what I think Moses is showing us here is that the promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah was a promise that could only be accomplished by the power of God bringing life from the dead. Look at Abraham's thought. He says, I'm 100 years old. I am uh, past my prime, as they say. Sarah is 90 years old, way past childbearing age, and yet God promised there will be a son from your body and her body. And Abraham is blown away by this, thinking this can only happen by the power of God bringing life from the dead. Abraham said to God in verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, verse 19, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. In Hebrew, the name Isaac means laughter. It's the same word. And so what God is telling Abraham is you're going to name this child laughter. Because when I gave you this promise, you were overjoyed. He is the son of promise. And so what I think Christ is saying in John chapter 8 is that when Abraham saw his day, he saw it and was glad. What Abraham saw through the promise of his son, through the type of Isaac, is a fulfillment of the promise in Christ. In seeing Isaac, Abraham saw Christ. And so Christ can say in John chapter 8, Abraham saw my day and was glad. A couple of points here. First, this is a very important rule of thumb for reading the scriptures. I'll use our sacraments as an illustration of this. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper or when we uh, celebrate a baptism, what do you actually see with your eyes? Well, you see bread and wine. You see water and a baby or an adult, as the case might be. With your eyes, you see these outward signs. But the sacraments, as outward signs, are appointed pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. So through those signs, by faith, you see the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. Likewise, in the Old Testament, when God gives types and promises to the people of the Old Testament, they, by faith, through the type, were looking to Christ. They were seeing Christ through the means God had appointed. This is often a mistake I think some people make when they look at the Old Testament. That we're just not well trained in how to see the types. So that when Abraham receives the promise of Isaac, Christ can say, He saw my day. He saw the gospel fulfilled in his presence and he was overjoyed by it. He didn't receive all the promises. He didn't receive the full blessing. He didn't get to see Christ on the cross. He didn't get to uh, enjoy the promised land even. But he still saw the day of Christ, and when he saw it, he rejoiced. 
That's a very practical application to read the Bible, but there's also a very, uh, another practical application to help you in your walk with Christ. There are many things that God has promised to us, and there are many things that we will not see in this life with these eyes. There are many things God has promised you in the Scriptures, but many of those things are for a future day. You will not see them by sight. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. We have to walk according to God's Word and walk by faith in His Word, not by what our eyes see. That's exactly what's going on with Abraham and Sarah, isn't it? They tried to walk by sight with Hagar, and then they got Ishmael out of it. But God was gracious and reminded them, no, the promise is what you need to look at, not your outward circumstances. And as we look at the promise, by faith we see Christ, and in seeing Christ we rejoice in His day. The power of faith is such that all of the promises of the Bible, all the promises of glory, all the promises of joy and rejoicing in God's presence can be yours today. You can enjoy the benefits of them by faith right now. If you will but lay hold of them by faith, just as Abraham did and rejoiced to see his day. Well, Christ has refuted the charge that he's a lunatic. He has refuted the charge that he's a liar. That leaves only one option. He really is the Lord. And the Jews then ask him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? The Jews are still stuck in this carnal way of thinking. They don't understand who this man is that they're talking to. This man that they're talking to is more than a man. He is not a mere man, but he is God incarnate. Christ now comes out and just says very plainly to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Christ flatly comes out and says, I am Jehovah. We've, we've seen this before in this same chapter. Christ says in verse 24, I said that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Uh, and then later on in verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. Now here at the end of John chapter 8, Christ simply says to them, most assuredly, before Abraham was, I am. In the Old Testament, this is the name Jehovah. It's often translated as Lord in our English Bibles, and that comes from the New Testament practice. In the New Testament, the apostles often, when they are translating the Old Testament into Greek, or when they are uh, quoting the Septuagint, they use the Greek word for Lord to stand in the place of Jehovah. So when Christ says here, I am, he is saying, I am the Lord. This is a fundamental truth of the Christian religion. The Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son 
incarnate in a true human nature. This is the linchpin of our religion. If Jesus Christ is anything less than Jehovah Almighty, none of us are saved. Everything we're doing is, is a waste of time. If, if Jesus Christ is only a man who somehow attained godhood through his obedience, none of you can be saved. But because Jesus Christ is the living Jehovah, because he is the great I am who has taken on human flesh and come to save us through his incarnation, you can be saved. Those of you who believe in Christ are saved. You are being progressively saved through the power of the great I am. Two important things that come out of this. One, never forget, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Now, the way we have to understand this, uh, something we talked about in the new members class, so those of you who were not there are getting a little refresher. Our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a divine person who took a human nature to himself. Fundamentally, the Lord Jesus Christ is a divine person. He is not a human person. He has a full human nature. He has a true human body and a, and a true human soul. But his personal identity is what he tells the Jews right here. I am the Son of God incarnate. Secondly, because Jesus Christ is God incarnate, because he is a divine person who took on human flesh, this is one of the main reasons why we are not to draw pictures of Christ. Now this, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but what I do want to present to your minds is to think about this in this way. The Lord Jesus Christ is a divine person. The Westminster Larger Catechism tells us one of the sins of the second commandment is attempting to depict God visually or to depict any of the three persons visually. Christ is a divine person. So to attempt to depict him visually violates the second commandment. Now let me tie this back in with Abraham and tell you why that is so critical. Because the means that God has appointed to show His Son to you is preaching and the sacraments. Those are the ways that God has appointed for your faith to see Christ through those means, not through ways that you invent, not through ways that you come up with, not through ways that are according to our own imagination, but through the ways that He has appointed. Finally, Notice how the Jews respond to this. Remember I said this passage is about the unbelieving heart and how it responds to each of these claims. First, it, it accuses Jesus of being a lunatic. Then it accuses him of being a liar. Finally, when the unbelieving heart recognizes that Jesus really is the Lord, 
They want to kill him. Look at what happens. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Understand, brothers and sisters, that the, the motivation of an unbelieving heart, the motivation of the seed of Satan, is not just to ignore God. It's not to ignore God's people. It is an attempt to destroy God, if that were possible. The unbelieving heart wants not merely to disobey God, it wants to kill God, just as the Jews do here. And so we need to ask ourselves a question. Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord? That's good, but that's not good enough. These Jews acknowledged him as Lord, and they wanted to kill him. The saving acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord is to recognize that he is Lord and to trust in him and to obey him. Remember what Christ says about Abraham. Verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And what is the one work of Abraham that Christ highlights? Abraham, your father, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. If you would be saved, rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, put your trust in him, and you will be Abraham's offspring. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to save us and to deliver us from sin. We pray that you would help us to ever grow in the joy of the Lord to walk in his ways, to be as our father Abraham, doing the works of Abraham, rejoicing in the day of the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would preserve us by the power of Christ in his word, that we may never see death and enjoy your presence forever. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.